Welcome back for another episode of The Break Room. I'm your host, Morgan Hensley, and in this episode, we're exploring tools and strategies to help providers adapt to and consistently succeed in value-based care. In a recent article published in the Harvard Business Review, adopting value-based care was listed as one of the five critical priorities for the U.S. healthcare system. The author, President and CEO of Intermountain Healthcare, Dr. Mark Harrison, observed that value-based care improves quality of life and corrects misaligned incentives, which can in turn reduce healthcare costs by making care more accessible and keeping people healthy. However, Dr. Harrison noted that several challenges stand in the way. Lack of educational resources, insufficient technology, disorganized workflows, and more. Here today to discuss these obstacles and ways that organizations can help physicians overcome them to thrive in value-based care is Rick Forrester, Senior Vice President of Value-Based Operations at Privia Health. We'll explore those tools and strategies for physician engagement and education, the importance of physician leadership and guidance, the pandemic's impact on value-based care, and much more. And with that, let's start the show. Hey, Rick, welcome back to The Break Room. It's been a little while since we had you as a guest, uh, and, and I'm very excited to have you on again. Value-based care is such an enormous topic that I, I think it would be helpful to start off by uh, looking at one part of it, the Medicare Shared Savings Program, uh, or MSSP. What does MSSP tell us about the, uh, the current state as well as future of value-based care? Yeah, so the MSSP program has been uh, in existence for a while now. And so CMS has just a great amount of data to see how the program is going and might give us some glimpses in terms of how it evolves over time. Um, I think there was sort of a first generation of MSSP where it was really about getting participation and groups could join and get an upside only arrangement. And if you win, great. If you lost, no big deal. Um, and so it drove a lot of participation, but maybe didn't drive a lot of performance. Around 2019, CMS shifted the rules to the new Pathways of Success program, which really drove uh, groups uh, or ACOs to uh, be forced into higher levels of risk and reward. Uh, and they couldn't just hang out in this upside only zone. And so you, you, you saw a couple things happen. One was the participation actually uh, decreased. And you can see that in the year over year number of ACOs and participants uh, but the performance increased as well. And so there might be some selection bias around you know, what groups are staying in the program or not. Um, but I think you're seeing a very clear shift from CMS and then um, CMMI, the Innovation uh, Center, where uh, they're sort of moving past this participation award idea. And they're really going to force provider groups uh, into more risk-based models, or there will be penalties, or they might just have limited upside. And so I think we're going to, it's really going to be interesting to see what the next evolution is like. Um, but I think only the groups who really are willing to take some level of downside risk will be the ones who reap the reward. Otherwise, you're going to have to just sort of take uh, whatever CMS gets you and gives you in terms of things like even just fee-for-service fee reimbursement rates. Um, and so I think that that's what type of uh, evolution we may see over time. To illustrate how those select groups can consistently uh, reap the rewards, let's discuss Privia Health. In 2020, Privia Health achieved 
million dollars in MSSP alone. What key factors uh, enabled such significant savings and how might these extend to commercial value-based models? Yeah, I think your point on consistency is uh, the real crux there because um, you know we see a lot of groups who, even just looking alone at the MSHP program, might have one year of success, but then it's very lumpy. One year they win, the next year they don't. They don't really know how uh, they did or um, creating any level of predictability around outcome. And then also certainly where you're going in terms of translation to commercial programs is you know, if you found success in the MSSP program, how do you take that into other value-based arrangements as well? And a lot of groups fall uh, there. So I think, you know, there are, uh, for Privia and, and for other groups, you know, that are successful in these programs, I think there are a, a few different keys to success. One is um, making sure you have the right group and you have uh, the right strategy around what programs you enter. And so what do I mean by that? Um, you know, for the right group is you've got to have providers who have a uh, interest in value-based care, a willingness to learn and develop and be successful. Like I said, those early innings of, of MSSP program where people just got lucky, you know, and, uh, you know, hey, if we show up, maybe we'll get an award. Like those, those days are over. And so you've got to be able to put some concerted effort in order to be successful going forward. That's one. And then I think you have to be smart in terms of, well, for your group for your maturity, um, for uh, a lot of your uh, numbers around what is your historical benchmark and, um, and success there, what is the right program for you? And it might not be to jump into the deep end of, of full global risk right out the gate. You might be, it might be more appropriate to start um, in one of the, the more basic tracks. And that, that sort of mentality, I think, and each year doing that evaluation and having the right expertise around the table of say actuaries to do, to run the numbers, to say, all right, what makes sense for us? Those, those components set you up for success. Okay. And that, that's really the foundation. And, and, and what comes after that is, is really a few fundamentals. And, um, you know, we are really big in a couple components, especially around access and quality. We really feel like access and quality are just table stakes, but the, the fundamentals for being successful in value-based care. It's like, you know, if you want to like lose weight, right? Like you need to eat better, sleep, sleep more and exercise, right? Don't worry about, Hey, do I need to switch to organic, uh, you know, chickpeas or not? Right. So really focusing on the fundamentals and, um, for us, access and quality is embedded into the day-to-day -day workflow for every one of our patients, uh, that comes to the door. So it's not just reserved to MSSP patients alone in this case, or another value-based contract. We make sure that the workflows uh, and data around quality is there inside the point of care when the doctor and staff are seeing patients on a day-to-day -day basis. Because if, if, if it's not there on a day-to-day -day basis um, in front of people um, all the time, then you're not gonna have that type of consistency of success, success or that's, that's what we've seen. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, access, quality, uh, and nailing the fundamentals are, are crucial to success across value-based programs. At the same time, uh, value-based care isn't a, a one-size-fits-all model. It, it varies tremendously from uh, one geography to another. So what are some important factors that physicians and organizations 
should consider when adapting services uh, to fit the unique needs of uh, a given region and its patient population? Yeah, it's a good question and, and probably one of the hardest in, in healthcare. Um, there's a saying, right, that healthcare is local. And so it, it makes developing, you know, for national organizations like Privia, you know, how do you develop a scalable model that is consistent across regions if healthcare is local? Um, and, you know, so I think there are uh, several different components there. One is, you know, you can have the right set of infrastructure that is uh, consistent no matter where you are. Things like the data, the technology, um, you know, those are, those are, again, foundational elements where, um, you know, it can really work across markets. Now, can you get access to certain data in certain markets? Yes, you can um, have those problems, but, um, you know, over time, you'll figure them out. You know, really where, where we see a lot of the key uh, success coming from is having a strong local physician engagement model, uh, call it the, the front lines of healthcare, the ground game of healthcare, where you've got really good people uh, at a local level, thinking about their patients, thinking about their market, thinking about the specialists and facilities in their region, and really getting their hands dirty into the day-to-day -day problems of, of value-based care. And so what does that mean? Uh, one is you have to set up a local governance structure that is physician-led. And that's not only at a market level where uh, you might have a board of governors, uh, that is overseeing uh, the market and the performance and key decisions. Uh, but you also got to break that down into the local physician groups. At Privia, we, we use this concept called pods, um, and it's used some, some, some other places in different fashions, but really it's trying to deconstruct um, uh, the physician governance model to be very local, where you've got a group of, say, 15 to 20 physicians who meet on an ongoing basis, could be about monthly. There's a physician leader at the head that's reviewing the metrics, addressing any uh, issues or areas of performance uh, that, that might need to be reviewed with one of the groups. And so you've got to have that strong physician-led governance at a local level, and that's one. And then two is just you've got to have the local uh, population health resources on the ground. And so we think that that physician governance, the local operations, plus that technology data infrastructure and backend, that's sort of the best formula to be able to do value-based care in a more system, systematic and consistent way while really being able to execute in the details on a day-to-day -day basis. You made so many great points around uh, localizing value-based care uh, and, and healthcare more generally. It's like we, we have these core elements, governance or the physician organized delivery pods you mentioned, expertise, technology, that by design are tailored to fit and adapt to a region's unique needs. I'm reminded of a recent episode of the podcast in which I spoke with Privia Health CEO, Sean Morris and Chief Clinical Officer, Dr. Keith Fernandez about physician enablement. We discussed technology and resources that help equip physicians with the tools they need to deliver high quality, cost-efficient care uh, and devote more time and focus to, to patients. So what are some tools that can benefit providers in, uh, in value-based care arrangements? Yeah, um, it's a good question because, you know, what, what's interesting about this whole debate about value-based care is, you know, we, like some others, really believe in that independent physicians in America are the key to value-based care. 
but they can't do it alone. They just are typically, you know, small offices are some of the best position to be successful in value-based care, but they're not best positioned from a resources perspective, an expertise, a technology capital perspective. And so, you know, what we think about is how do you create the, the, the team and tools around an independent practice to say, supercharge them to the next level, you know, and, and those components look like, you know, a having a, uh, key liaison who is really trained up an expert in value-based care, who understands the mechanics of these programs, who understands what you need to do on a day-to-day -day, uh, basis to be successful. Uh, how do you need to evolve your workflows um, on, on, a, on a practice level um, uh, to be successful? That's one. Two is the care team. Now the practice might be um, you know, really great at taking care of, of their patients and uh, they're inaccessible, but there are more uh, sort of you know, advanced areas or uh, and, uh, specialized areas, things like behavioral health or palliative care, very hard for especially a small provider practice to have access to those type of resources uh, that you know can supplement a group like that. And then uh, the technology is, is a big area. Very, very hard for uh, independent groups, even large groups. Large groups, uh, we hear all the time, really struggle with having the expertise and capital required to develop the technology and implement the technology necessary. Um, and so you've got to be able to give providers payer agnostic tools and technology at the point of care when they are seeing patients, not a piece of paper uh, you know, printed off that may or may not get into the hands of a doctor, not some other uh, window in your browser that you have to log in and uh, hopefully you remember your login to uh, that, that application. And it's different every payer you see. Uh, you know, it's gotta be embedded within uh, the workflow. And that's things like, are you uh, are your providers seeing quality gaps presented to them at the point of care? Are they seeing um, uh, risk or diagnosis gaps presented in the point of care? Are there referral workflows set up to ensure that uh, patients go to the highest value specialists in the region? Um, if the patient has access to other clinical programs or say care management, is there an easy way to get that patient into those services? Things like that. Um, very, very critical to get that inside the workflow, payer agnostic, so you're, you're not just delving uh, through all these different portals. I mean, back to the consistency problem, you know, one thing that I see is that groups can be very successful with one value-based program or contract. Um, it, it's very, very common, especially it's in, in Medicare Advantage space where just the whole organization puts all of their focus around this one contract and they can obsess about it. They can obsess about the data. They can really just put the all, all resources and, and focus on that one, one contract. And then you add a second contract and it's like, uh-oh, we've got this split focus. Uh, we've got to deal with data over here that looks that way and data over there that looks another way. And how do you reconcile those two things? So that's why I'm just really stressing that payer agnostic approach has to uh, be there in order to create that consistency uh, for doctors on a day-to-day -day basis. Your mention of value-based care is complexity, uh, especially for smaller independent practices uh, is sort of the perfect segue to my next question. Uh, I recently came across an article by Modern Healthcare, which said, uh, let me find the quote, uh, CMS could help clinicians buy into value-based care by simplifying its programs, improving information sharing, designing uh, clinician-centric models, and holding healthcare organizations more accountable. So according to this piece, these measures could improve provider engagement in value-based care. 
how can organizations promote this engagement that is so vital to consistent success in, in value-based care? Yeah, it's it's interesting point. Um, and I've been really involved um, with a lot more health policy uh, the last few years in my role um, because I do think so much of, of the success in value-based care is dictated by the program design. And if it's designed uh, in error or not, not quite right, it can create a lot of downstream problems for providers. And a big thing that we do is actually just helping simplify and remove some of that complexity. Because it is, it is actually kind of maddening around all the different programs, um, even within CMS, but then you go into commercial payers, Medicare Advantage, Medicaid, I mean, there's a different quality methodology, risk adjustment methodology, benchmarking methodology, trend methodology, um, just all and many more. I mean, I could go on. There's so many different variables in each one of these contracts, and they vary very slightly together. I'll give you one example, like quality programs, when you look at them across uh, contracts, really just they generally fit within the same themes, but they have slight variations. You know, w one has these seven measures. Another has these 12. Um, the measures are me are measured a little bit differently, and the targets are a little bit different than one another. And so it can be maddening. Certainly, um, you know, that's my life, and I can deal with that because that's my day job. Um, but when you've got a provider trying to manage all that complexity through a very, very busy day, it's just infuriating. And so, you know, one thing that we try and do here is just, I feel like I'm being a little repetitive, but like distilling things down to the fundamental concepts that we need to do these things on a day-to-day -day basis regardless of what patient we see um, and don't get obsessed about well with this one contract the quality measures are th are these seven things and the quality measures over here are these 12 things we're going to deal with that complexity on the background we will chase uh things in the background uh and find the data and do whatever we need to uh to make it all work behind the scenes but on a day-to-day -day basis with providers it's got to be simple and um you know uh, just, just easy to go about their work day to day. And I, I don't say all this stuff to, um, insult physicians and their intellectual capabilities, because that's certainly not in question at all. It is more out of respect for physicians and their day to day, the amount of complexity and, uh, everything that they have to deal with and the hard work it is in order to make something very complex, simple, so it can be executed on continuously and consistently. Continuing with that train of thought, how can we engage doctors who already have such busy, complex day-to-days? Uh, said, said differently, value-based care can be a positive long-term investment, but it also often requires providers to make an initial investment uh, of time and energy. So what are some strategies that you found helpful to cultivate physician education, uh, promote a, a growth mindset and collaboration and foster a culture of improvement. Yeah, uh, that's like the holy grail of all this, right? Um, and uh, I think it's, it's, it's a lot of, I wouldn't say little things, but a lot, of, a lot of things. You know, one is selecting those right groups from the start who are in it for the mission, not uh, just to uh, sort of make a quick buck and and move on because that's not certainly going to work. And so you gotta you gotta have the right sort of mindset coming in. Um, the second thing is you've got to um, 
you know, again, really distill those things into the day-to-day -day workflows. And then you've got to have that right uh, governance structure uh, that creates uh, motivation around performance in the group. And so I'll give you an example, but those pods uh, that we were discussing before, those 15 to 20 doctors who meet regularly, um, we will say for quality scores, just put up on the screen, uh, the quality scores of the physicians. And it's all there for everyone to see. And the idea is not to sort of, uh, you know, hammer uh, people who are underperforming, but really create a tra uh, uh, um, that transparency around performance and facilitate a discussion around, oh, uh, this doctor is doing really well. What are they doing that is leading them to that success? This doctor is struggling. What are the hurdles or obstacles that are getting in their way? And that creates a good discussion and frankly creates peer pressure because no doctor really wants to be underperforming for very long, uh, or at least not many of the good ones um, that we've worked with who agree with the sort of way in which they are uh, measured. Um, and so I think um, those are those are some um, techniques. And I think you've really got to understand your physicians at a very personal level to understand what motivates them and what is getting in the way of success. Because, you know, Physicians are not easy to, you know, convince. Um, they typically need to see a lot of data. Uh, they need to understand how it affects their patients. They are many times running a business, so they need to understand how this could have positive or negative effects to uh, the businesses they run, and um, you know how to how to keep the office open. And so you've got to, you know, really understand for each and every physician what are those levers that you need to pull um, and think about for that individual, not some sort of peanut butter spread strategy where, hey, if we just send an email about this thing and it you know, is really well worded, it's just gonna convince 100% of doctors. Like, that's just not gonna happen. Um, and so you've got to, it goes back to the local sort of ground game where if, if you have people, good people who understand what we're trying to achieve, who are meeting with physicians and staff on a day-to-day -day basis, really understanding the problems um, with the tools, to help you, they've got the toolkit where, oh, I've got to fix this doctor's workflow. Well, I've got a tool in, in order to plug in into this situation. Um, anyways, that combination of things is, is really the, the what you have to do in order to uh, get physicians engaged and, and their staff as well. Yeah, governance and data are, are so crucial to value-based care success. Uh, I'm wondering how this may extend to patients uh, or beneficiaries uh, in the case of Medicare. I recently read an op-ed that argued uh, essentially that patient engagement and education can ultimately help healthcare organizations participating in value-based programs. With that in mind, uh, what are some strategies and tools to engage and educate patients? Yeah, I've if you are not able to engage your patients, then you're dead in the water for any value-based care. You know, you because, because value-based care, you know, the mentality is about shifting from reactive to proactive care. Uh, reactive being, uh, well, whenever a patient calls my office and I can fit them in, um, I'll see them and hear what they, they have to ask me. Proactive is thinking about who are the patients who are not coming into my office or when they are in their office, what are the questions that maybe they're not asking that I should be asking of them? Um, and it's really sort of turning the dial on, on that from being reactive, proactive. And so you've got to have some way in which you are getting out there and 
getting in the hearts and minds of the of, of your patients, uh, regardless of where you uh, they, they sit. And what's interesting, I think, as you look at this evolution of patient engagement is, right, you know, it used to be uh, the patient portal. And then, you know, at some point it switched to like email or text base. And then at some point it, uh, you know, moved over to things like telehealth. Um, and then, of course, there's, you know, always the phone, right? There's, there's kind of all these things. And every step along this evolution, these things are presented as the, the solution, right? This is the new silver bullet that's going to solve the patient engagement problem. And really, I think in my experience, it is never one thing. And it is all always all the above. Um, because patients' preferences are vast. And the way that they are uh, you know, best engaged is very different. Uh, and, and certainly telehealth might work for some, but it won't work for others. Patient portal works for some, may not for others. And so you've really got to actually attack all different dimensions of engagement. How are you getting your patients into the patient portal? How are you getting their email and connecting with them? How are you getting their mobile phone and texting them? How are you getting them um, uh, into virtual care? How are you calling them when necessary? How are you maybe even bypassing all the above and getting right into their homes um, and getting inside of where they live on a day-to-day -day basis? You've got to go where your patients are. And sometimes that's not easy. And sometimes there's no one solution, but you've got to attack them. I shouldn't say attack, but you should attack all strategies rather than um, you know just thinking one. Uh, uh, building on that, uh, I'm curious, how can uh, and should providers educate patients about value-based care specifically? What does being a patient in a value-based contract look like? And uh, can understanding the concept improve the patient experience? Yeah, and uh, I think the, uh, in my opinion, the patient may never know that they are uh, sort of undergoing value-based care. It just looks like good proactive care to them. Um, and so as a patient, uh, they might never hear those words uh, in any conversation. Um, but it is, I mean, a patient who is in value-based care is, is going to see things or experience things a bit differently. They're gonna have their doctor reaching out to them very proactively about getting in for annual wellness care, even if, uh, to the patient, it might not seem necessary, or they want to delay it, or uh, whatever. Uh, the doctor will prioritize value-based care, so that's one. Um, two is that they're going to understand all the different ways that they can access their doctor, especially on an immediate care basis. So when I have an issue, and it's Saturday night, what do I do, right? And a lot of patients, uh, we'll quickly think of in those circumstances, the emergency room, or maybe there's a local urgent care available, but great value-based care doctors will have an option available and the patients will know, oh, I first need to think about my primary care doctor. Maybe my primary care doctor isn't available Saturday night, but a member of their team is. Um, so that's another piece. And then when you're inside the office with the doctor, that doctor might be bringing up things that you might be in for. Uh, a regular sick visit, but then all these different, you know, sort of questions and, um, you know, uh, sort of different views start to come into play, such as uh, screening the patient for depression. Um, maybe that you weren't expecting that, but this is good quality care to make sure that the totality of the patient is addressed. And then the last part I'll say is um, around acute care situations. So you've just been in the emergency room, just been discharged from the hospital, or 
Uh, maybe you were in another care setting. Um, and then all of a sudden you hear from your primary care provider, you know, asking about how things are going, uh, making sure that any medications you were prescribed are appropriate uh, to you, making sure you understand your uh, care plan, uh, maybe bringing you back into the primary care office uh, for more care to ensure it's coordinated. And so, you know, to a patient, they'll start to see these things embedded throughout their journey, whether they're well, whether they need immediate care, whether they just went through some event or episode. Um, the doctor is going to be very proactive and recognize all the different ways in which we need to engage that patient around their healthcare, whether that patient knows it or not. Um, and um, that, that might be what it looks like, or at least a version. It's a, it's a very interesting sort of uh, a day in the life look at how the patient experience uh, may differ when enrolled in a value-based plan. I, I want to zoom out now uh, for my last questions to see, see the larger landscape. Uh, how would you say the pandemic has impacted, uh, whether stalling, advancing, um, some combination of the twoing, how has it impacted value-based care? Yeah, it's um, it's really interesting because I think um, you know every day um, being in this space, I read some sort of article about it being the end of value-based care, or it's the you know you know everything's going to double over the next year. Um, and usually the truth is in the middle. But I think that uh, the pandemic, you know, despite all of uh, ob obvious negatives that it had in people's lives and uh, families across the country, including uh, my own family. Um, I think that it was a really important moment for accelerating a lot of elements of healthcare that had been on the back burner, telehealth you know, being the most obvious example. Um, but in sort of the transition to value-based care, I think um, several th things come to mind. One is that uh, groups who were beholden to fee-for-service reimbursement and thus, you know, in the middle of pandemic, saw volumes drop, um, and uh, really were seeking ways to recover that. And um, some never really came out. Um, you know, value-based care, especially some of the different payment models, where you might be able to get capitated payments on an ongoing basis that's not dependent on fee-for-service reimbursement, it can create a stability for a practice um, going through these sort of waves and seasons of life um, that you're not uh, beholden to that fee-for-service volume. Um, that's one. And then I think the other thing um, uh, that we saw, and um, I think there was a recent study that I forget the uh, where it came from, but it really showed that uh, value-based care groups, um, groups who are in value-based care, were best positioned to succeed in the pandemic because they had already developed some of the tools and muscles in order to do exactly what we're talking about. Um, in order to engage patients around what is happening with their patient population, around uh, engaging patients on a proactive basis, reaching out, trying to understand what's happening with them in their day-to-day -day lives, um, making sure that they're uh, uh, staying healthy. I mean, we, we had a campaign here at Privia called Healthy at Home, which was really all about making sure that even healthy patients remained healthy during the pandemic, because we saw a lot of patients with chronic conditions foregoing or delaying care that would have long-term negative effects. Um, and so I think that, um, you know, we will see a continuous shift uh, to, to more value-based care for these reasons, both in terms of reimbursement and also uh, everybody recognizing 
you know, hey, the organizations who are doing value-based care well are best oriented to get through these type of moments like a pandemic uh, and come out stronger even on the other side. Yeah. Cer- certainly the, the pandemic has forced healthcare uh, collectively to confront uh, and reckon with some issues that it otherwise would have possibly, uh, you know, kick, kick the can down the road for a bit longer, uh, so to speak. I want to close out by, uh, by looking ahead to the future of value-based care, which we touched on uh, actually in the very beginning when talking about MSSP's ongoing evolution. I've seen a lot of literature recently around value-based care and home health, downside risk, uh, greater opportunities for specialists. What are your predictions for how value-based care will change uh, over the next, uh, say, one to five years? And what do physicians need to, uh, to successfully adapt, adapt to and thrive in uh, this changing environment? You know, it's a good question because I, I'm not a futurist and I don't have any sort of proclamations about what the world might look like in this or that time period. But I'm pretty certain about two things. One is that the value base of contracts and arrangements will increase. There will be more options available to provider groups, especially in some of the more advanced risk tracks. Um, you saw where uh, we've seen Medicare Advantage really leading the way in terms of the type of contracts and the flexibility of contracts available. And now we're seeing uh, traditional Medicare, uh, Medicaid and commercial payers follow suit. So I think you'll see a big advancement in terms of capitation, global risk contracts, reimbursement options that really move us further down the value-based curve. And you'll see a greater percentage of pay- physicians, sorry, who are engaged in value-based care and the depth of those agreements um, being bigger. A lot, we, we talk actually a, a, a lot of, about breadth and depth of contracts, breadth being the percentage of your patient panel that is covered in value-based arrangements, or you might measure this by number of attributed lives, and then depth being the level of risk or um, uh, you know, sort of uh, just the level of risk uh, as part of that arrangement, you know, whether it be you know, at a basic level, pay for performance all the way to, to global risk. So I think that reimbursement model will change. That's one. I think the second element and I think, you know, the pandemic certainly has really just amplified a lot of these effects is people are really understanding that you've got to treat the whole person, not just the clinical need as it appears to you today. You know, we've seen a massive shift lately around behavioral health in the need to address that proactively and really have a full set of services available for patients with those needs, whether inside your group or through partners. We've seen, you know, big awareness around so what's called social determinants of health, which has always been around, but are now being rec- recognized and appreciated for the impact on people's health. And so doctor groups need to be thinking differently about their patients. And again, not just here's a patient portal, you know, we help you engage, but what is at the bottom of this patient's issues, why are they having difficulty accessing services? And how do we find ways around it? It's really going to require people to be more creative 
on a patient-by-patient -patient basis and having a broader toolkit available for all the different preferences or circumstances uh, that they see day to day. Um, and I think, you know, la last as part of the uh, sort of care delivery is a shift to more care at home. Um, you know, I'm not uh, surprising anyone by saying, you know, obviously the move to telehealth has been significant. And, you know, while there was a spike during the pandemic and maybe some of the volumes have dropped again, I think patients are getting used to that type of delivery model. And I can tell you for myself and my family, having gone through telehealth visits, like that's the first option I think of now when it comes to my care and my family's care. And the default isn't in person anymore. Um, and so, you know, I think we will see a whole lot of innovation and creativity around telehealth, around remote patient monitoring, around home visits. We're seeing very interesting models develop um, across the country. and physician groups really need to understand their patients, the problems that they're facing, and having that suite of options or toolkit available to address those needs. So I don't know what that looks like in uh, you know five years or where that exactly ends on the spectrum, but I do think those trends are happening and we will definitely see more of it over, over time. Yeah, it's gonna be fascinating to see uh, value-based cares uh, evolution and the the ways the industry will adapt to help drive uh, that consistent success. And uh, I, I look forward to discussing that with you and would welcome the opportunity to have you back on the break room. With that, Rick Forrester, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thanks for having me, Morgan. And thank you to you, our listeners, for tuning into the break room. You can read Rick's article, Creating Consistent Success in Value-Based Care, on Informed, the blog by Privia Health. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and blog to stay up to date on all things healthcare. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I will see you next time for another episode of The Break Room. So stay tuned.